It is so good to be here on this Easter morning with all of you. And together, I, I feel so lifted up in my spirit as we have worshipped our risen King together. And I can't speak for any of you, but I feel like over this last season of Lent and over this past Holy Week that we have truly been on a journey. That as we have week after week come to the crossroads of life and death, as we have come to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ from many different angles and we have considered the stories of different, different characters as we've thought of Mary Magdalene and the other women who, when all others fled, stayed at the cross of Jesus Christ even as he, even as he died. As we consider the centurion and as he makes this declaration of faith after having witnessed everything that unfolded that night to say, surely this man was the Son of God. And as we've considered the example of the beloved disciple, John, the only one who didn't forsake Jesus in his darkest hour, as we've even last week come to the two other crosses that flank Jesus on either side and considered the criminal's story and the decisions that both of them made, one to accept and the other to reject the Savior who died between them. And now this past week, as we've come together in prayer and come together on Good Friday, and now here on Sunday, I don't know about you, but I, I feel spent. <laughs> I just, uh, I prepared for this message yesterday as I finished it off, and I just said, Lord, I got nothing left to give. I've gone to the cross so many times that I don't think I got it in me. And he said, well, don't worry. We don't have to go to the cross anymore. We can go to the tomb. And there you find peace. There you can just sit and bask in the glow that it's done. It's finished. And we can just live in that truth. We can, we can just have victory every single day of our lives because of today. And it's so good to go through that journey to the cross to remember how important this day is. Because if we don't go to the cross again and again to be reminded of this day, of why it is so important, we lose sight of it. And so today I pray that it is in sharp focus for you why this day of all days is so important for each one of us. I just feel so blessed to be able to have journeyed to the cross with you over this period of Lent and pray that this morning as we consider one last chapter, as we consider the character Joseph of Arimathea, I pray that you will be blessed and challenged as we go out from here today. So would you bow with me and let's pray as we enter God's word. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit who gives us strength for the day who gives us peace and the assurance that we are your children. I thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit is the one who guides us into all truth, who gives us the ability to even understand the simple message of the gospel, that we're sinners, that we couldn't pay for our own sin, we couldn't earn our way into your good grace. But you, Jesus, went to the cross. You died in the place of sinners. You took our sin upon yourself. The full wrath and judgment of God was born in your body. And because of your death, our sins were paid for in your blood. And so we were buried with you, Lord, as you went into that grave. But that, Lord, you did not stay in that grave. Oh, Lord, you came out victorious. You came out the conqueror over sin and death and Satan and even hell itself, Lord. You won the victory. And you say today, you hold the keys. And so, Lord, we come to you in simple faith and thank you that you hold the keys. And that, Lord, as we come to you, that simple message of salvation, you have done it all. And all we have to do is receive it. 
And so, Lord, we just pray that today your Holy Spirit would speak to us, fill this place, enlighten us, Lord, with your truth, and convict us to live lives in the reality of this truth. We ask, Lord, for your presence. I ask for your boldness and pray that you would speak to each one who's present here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Jeremy did not have what most people would consider a normal childhood. And no, I'm not talking about my brother. <laughs> Although you could ask him about that, and he may, he may say otherwise. You see, Jeremy did not have what most would consider a normal childhood because he was born with a terminal illness which affected both his body and his mind. It was a de degenerative disease that they knew would end his life at an early age. But still, his parents had tried their very best to give him as normal a life as possible. And one of those things they had done was sent him to a Christian elementary school. And so at the age of 12, Jeremy had only gone as far as the second grade, seemingly unable to learn any more than he already had. He was, fr he was a frustration not only to his teachers, but to the other children in the class, as Jeremy constantly needed everything repeated again and again and again. And so as springtime came and the children were talking excitedly about the coming of Easter and the, the chocolate bunnies they were going to be receiving, their, their teacher told them the story of Jesus. And then to emphasize the idea of new life springing forth, she gave each of the children a large plastic egg with this homework assignment. I want you to take this plastic egg home and bring it back tomorrow with something inside that symbolizes new life. Do you understand? And all the children replied enthusiastically that they did. Yes, Miss Miller, they replied. All of that is except for Jeremy. He had understood the, had he truly understood the assignment that she had asked of him? Did he get it? And so, un unsure of whether or not he truly understood, after the class was over, Miss Miller took Jeremy aside and explained it to him a second time. Do you understand what I'm asking of you? And she still was unsure if he really got it. But she sent him out, having explained it as well as she could. And so the next morning, the 19 children came back to, to class, laughing and talking excitedly. And they each placed their eggs in this large wicker basket on the front of Miss Miller's desk. After they completed their math lesson, it was time to open the first eggs. In the first egg, Miss Miller found a flower, a beautiful flower. And she said, oh yes, a flower is certainly a sign of new life. When plants peek through the ground, we know that spring is here. She opened the next egg, which contained a butterfly. The teacher held it up and she said, We all know that a caterpillar changes and grows into a beautiful butterfly. Yes, this is a great example of new life. Then the teacher opened a third egg. But the egg was empty. Surely it must be Jeremy's, she thought. And obviously he hadn't understood her instructions. So, not wanting to embarrass him, she quietly set the egg aside and began reaching for another. When suddenly, Jeremy spoke up from the class. Miss Miller, aren't you going to talk about my egg? A bit flustered, the teacher said, But Jeremy, your egg is empty. And he looked at her and gently replied, Yes, but Jesus' tomb was empty too. Truly, the empty tomb is the greatest symbol 
of new life, my friends. The, the stone is rolled away. It's empty. Come see for yourself. He is not here. He is risen. I think Jeremy understood the meaning of new life perhaps better than any that day. You see, the grave, death itself could not hold him. The earth shook, the stone rolled away, and Jesus emerged victorious over death. And he says, to live forever and ever. And so this morning we have gathered to celebrate that. That here at the crossroads of life and death, death does not have the final word. Instead, death itself has been swallowed up by life through the power of Jesus' resurrection. And so today as we celebrate the glory of this truth on Easter morning, I ask you to travel back with me just one more time to Golgotha. Travel once more to the broken body of Jesus as he yet hung on the cross in that hour after he died. Let us take a moment to consider the journey that brought Jesus' dead body from that Roman cross of execution into the brand new tomb of one of the wealthiest and religiously influential men in all of Israel. I'm speaking, of course, of Joseph of Arimathea. Now, I want you to remember that the burial of Jesus must have surely been the darkest and lowest point for all of the followers of Christ. All of the disciples must have simply been in utter despair. Because what hope is left at that point? From a human point of view, the grave brings such a powerful sense of finality. And I can just tell you from my own personal experience, death has always had this appearance and feeling of finality, of this being the end, because the loved one is gone from my life and this life permanently. The tears that I have shed at the gravesides of grandparents and family members and friends alike have reflected that feeling of permanence in my own life, in my own soul, as I say goodbye to someone that I knew and loved. And I suspect that many of you know exactly the feeling that I am referring to. That feeling that as you say goodbye to a person that you perhaps loved best in all the world, and you watch their casket descend into the ground, there is this feeling that this is it, that somehow death has won. But you see, while there is still life, while there is still the smallest hope, we cling to that hope. Because while there is still one breath, we, we pray and believe for recovery. And oh, how even in those final hours, perhaps the disciples clung desperately to that hope. Remembering perhaps that Jesus had performed unbelievable miracles. You know, they had seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. They had seen him raise other children from the grave. They had seen him do countless miracles. Perhaps they held out hope in those final moments that yet he would come down from the cross. But now Jesus is dead. The skies have literally turned black. Everything seems lost. And all those witnessing this travesty, it says, went away, beating their breasts, overcome by the spectacle, the despair of what they had seen that day. There was no hope of coming back from this coming down from the cross. The deed was done. They couldn't take back what they had done to Jesus. For him to raise himself from the dead, in spite of what he had predicted, to them seemed utterly impossible. What must have seemed especially disheartening was that those 
whom you would have expected to remain strong in this hour. The disciples, those nearest to him, they have all deserted him and run away. Even John, the beloved disciple who was there at the cross, disappears from the scene after Jesus is dead. All that we have is a few women left weeping at a distance. And it's at this darkest hour, Jesus is dead. The the earth has shook in defiance of what has happened to the Son of God. And here in this darkest hour, something completely unexpected happens. In the book of John, chapter 19 and verse 38, if you want to turn there, we're going to be looking at this story. John 19, verse 38 reads, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. Here in this darkest hour, when all others have fled, we come up with a name that is completely unexpected. This Joseph of Arimathea is not mentioned a single time before this incident. So why now? And who is he? Well, we learn from all parallel texts, from all of the Gospels, they record this incident. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all give slightly different details. And we learn from the, all four of them, when we combine them together, we learn that Joseph was religious, he was rich, he was good, upright, and he was waiting for the kingdom of God to be established. We also learn that he was a secret disciple of Jesus Christ. But now when I say that Joseph was religious, I am putting that mildly. Because you see, in fact, he was a member of the exclusive Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a group of 70 men who represented all of the various factions of the Jewish religious community. So from the temple to the Pharisees to the law and the scribes, this was a collection of the most influential, the smartest religious men of the entire nation are made up in the Sanhedrin. And so this 70-member Sanhedrin, think of it in terms of being the supreme court for all matters of the Mosaic law and Jewish religious life. They are the highest authority in matters of Jewish life. And so above and over top all of this, even though he was an influential member of this 70-member Sanhedrin, somewhere along the line he had secretly in his heart come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And yet he chose not to reveal this, even though in his heart he had become convinced. For fear of the Jews, he kept it hidden away. And so as we consider this, he is a secret disciple. And why does he keep it hidden away? It's very simple, really. He's scared. He's afraid. And so he keeps his faith to himself. John says this fear was rooted in a fear of the Jews. Now, remember that Joseph of Arimathea is himself a Jew. And not only that, he is someone in a position of authority. So why would he fear his own people? His own people of whom he has some sway and power over. Why did he fear them? Because he feared that they would reject him just as they rejected Jesus. You see, Joseph knew that if he identified himself with Jesus, he risked losing absolutely everything. He risked losing not only his position on the Sanhedrin, but respect, power, 
and perhaps even his wealth and his own safety would be put on the line. And so up to this point in his discipleship, he has remained hidden in the shadows, in the dark. And we reflect that somewhere along the line, Joseph had become convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. But still, remaining quiet, he follows Jesus from a distance, in the cloak of secrecy. But then, here, in this hour, when all others have given up hope, a strange and stunning reversal takes place. And we must consider the timing of this seems so unlikely. Jesus is crucified and killed. All hope is lost. And it is then that suddenly Joseph finds his courage. How strange. What is it about this hour? Jesus is dead, and now he's going to step into the light? Now he's going to step from the shadows of fear into the bright light of center stage, not only revealing himself, but going before the governor who represents Rome, Pontius Pilate himself, and saying, Could I have the body of Jesus? Mark chapter 15, verse 43 says, Joseph went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. He was not, in this moment, interested in hiding anymore. And so, too, his courage must have inspired another to come out from the shadows. We read in John 19, verses 39 and 40, He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen, and this was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. Nicodemus, the one to whom Jesus said the most famous words in all of Christianity, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not die, but will receive everlasting life. That same Nicodemus who went to Jesus in the secrecy of night so that no one else would find out that he too, a member of the Sanhedrin, had questions, could this be the Messiah? And he too had clearly become convinced. And so here it is, these two previously fearful men, cowardly, hiding away in the, in the shadows, who suddenly step forward at the moment of defeat and now willingly choose to identify themselves before Pontius Pilate as followers of a dead man? Strange. Wouldn't you want to hitch your wagon to a leader when he's feeding the, the thousands in the, the open fields? Wouldn't you want to join up when it looks like he's marching in triumph into Jerusalem and everyone's shouting Hosanna? Why now? Why at such a strange time would they step forward and identify themselves as followers? Now, Scripture is not completely clear on answering the question of why here and why now, but we are given some clues. The first clue that we, that we can dig up from this text is that they desired to give Jesus an honorable burial. You see, they would have known that if they didn't act... Jesus' body would have been disgracefully thrown by the Roman soldiers into a mass grave on the side of the hill with the other criminals, there to be devoured by scavenging birds and to simply rot and decay. And so, seeking to avert this type of complete disgrace of their Savior and Lord's body, they ask for it. And so they make sure that Jesus receives a proper burial, and they go to, go to great personal expense to do so. 
Look at the text that says Nicodemus purchased 75, or some texts have translated it, 100 pounds worth of burial myrrhs, aloes, and spices to prepare his body for burial. And then Joseph donates his newly acquired family tomb that had not yet had a single body laid in it. All of these measures were extremely expensive. You know, then as now, dying is not cheap. If you've been to the funeral home and taken a look at caskets and prices for burial plots and headstones and closing an estate, it is not a cheap thing to die. It may be for the individual, but for those who are left behind, it is costly. And it was costly for Joseph and for Nicodemus as well. And so in these actions, they fulfilled directly the prophecy of Isaiah 53, verse 9, which says, He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. They fulfilled prophecy, perhaps knowingly or unknowingly. We're not certain on this point. But as we consider their desire to give Jesus an honorable burial, would that have been enough alone to bring previously fearful men out of the shadows? It seems alone highly unlikely that this was the sole reason. If they had been too afraid to stand with Jesus while he was still alive, it seems more than simply honoring a dead master evoked their actions. But what? I believe that it is because they recognize the fulfillment of prophecy. Remember that these were two men who were members of the Sanhedrin, which meant that they knew the entire scripture from memory. In fact, by the age of 12, they would have been so immersed in the Jewish law that they had to recite this verbatim with no mistakes to be able to be moving on into the next level of education. They had been immersed in the prophets and the law from a very young age, and so they are experts in all matter of law and matters of prophecy. So if these highly educated members of the Sanhedrin had become convinced that Jesus was indeed the Jewish Messiah that all of the prophets had foretold, isn't it highly likely that they would have diligently cross-examined Jesus' life and teaching with what the prophets had foretold? And so, it is also virtually guaranteed that in doing so, they would have read the prophecies concerning the Messiah's suffering and death. In Mark chapter 15, we are given one small clue into this possibly being at the root of the hope that they showed in the hour when all others had fled. You see, when Joseph went to Pilate to ask for his body, the Greek word that he used was different from the word that Pilate used when he gave him the body. Two different Greek words are used. When Nicodemus asked Pilate for Jesus' body, the word that was used could be referring to a living body. It was a generic term used for anyone's body. It could be referring to your own body or someone else's. It didn't have the connotation of death attached to it when he asked for the body. But now when Pilate discovers, in fact, from the centurion that Jesus has died, and he says, yes, I will release the body to you, the Greek word that he used for body is only one translation for it, corpse. Nicodemus asked for a body, not saying it's dead. Yes, he recognized that Jesus had died, and yet he uses a word that still could mean life. And Pilate, in return, uses a word that says, here's the corpse. Here is the dead body. And we see a clue emerge. 
Was Nicodemus asking in faith that this was not the end? And so now as we consider that the twelve disciples, on the other hand, were mostly uneducated men who had kept on waiting and expecting Jesus to establish an earthly kingdom. They had denied repeatedly the possibility of Jesus' death, even when he had told them directly that he must die. But it seems here that almost as though these two members of the Sanhedrin are expecting Jesus to suffer and die. And so I believe it is not only conceivable but likely that Joseph and Nicodemus were the only two disciples that truly understood that when they saw Jesus suffer and die, he was fulfilling prophecy. That rather than it to cause them to go running, they said, Aha! It's true! He is the Messiah. He is the one who is crushed for our sins. He is the one who has made a shame and a spectacle. The one who is pierced and by whose wounds We are healed. And rather than it causing them to go running in despair, no, something new emerges within them. And their their fear turns to courage. And for the first time, they step out in boldness and faith to identify themselves with a dead Messiah. Incredible. You see, instead of of basing their faith on the power of a living Jesus... Their faith was based on the weakness of Christ. Through the prophecies and the light of Scripture, they recognized that the death of Christ was necessary for His plan to be accomplished. When Jesus did what He said He would do in the darkest hour, they were then compelled to let their light shine. Instead of it killing their faith, seeing Jesus fulfill His promise of love caused it to fan into flame. And what an example. What an inspiration for all of us here today. There's an old story that I've shared before of how while a congregation was leaving the sanctuary after an Easter service, the preacher was standing at the door, and as always, he was shaking people's hands as they went out. And as one man in particular came by, the pastor grabbed his hand quite firmly and pulled him aside and whispered in his ear, Brother, you need to join the army of the Lord. The man quickly replied, I'm already in the army of the Lord, Pastor. Which the pastor questioned, How come I don't see you except at Christmas and Easter? And the man whispered back, I'm in the secret service. (laughs) Joseph and Nicodemus were in the secret service. They were secret disciples. They'd been hiding away in the shadows. And yet here, in the secret service, hiding away, most would have labeled Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, most would call them cowards for hiding away, for keeping their faith secret because of fear. But now, before we judge them too harshly, let's consider. Have you ever kept your Christian status quiet because of fear of what others may think, say, or do? Have you ever done it? Have you ever just decided to keep it to yourself? not reveal your identity as a follower of Christ. Maybe at school, you kept quiet in the hallway because you were afraid of being mocked. You'd seen others be mocked, you didn't want to be mocked, you kept quiet. Maybe at work, you kept quiet because you were afraid that if you revealed your Christian faith, someone would start asking you questions, and, ah, you're not ready for questions, and what if I don't know the answers? And so for fear, you stayed quiet. 
Maybe in your family you kept quiet because you're just, you're just afraid of an argument. You know, let's just keep the peace. I'm going to keep my faith to myself. Live and let live. And we'll just leave it at that. You know, there's so many scenarios as we look at our lives where we have kept our Christian faith hidden in the shadows because of fear. Fear of man. Fear what others may think, say, or do. Fear paralyzes faith. And left unchecked, fear can rule our lives and forever keep us hiding in the shadows as a secret disciple. Even the 11 remaining disciples who had publicly walked with Jesus for three years, everyone knew who they were. They'd gone everywhere the Master had been. They themselves are now paralyzed by fear. John chapter 20, verse 19, and we find them. On the evening of the first day of the week, Easter Sunday, on the evening of the greatest day in human history, the disciples, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. Where have you heard that phrase before? The roles have been reversed. The disciples had followed Jesus boldly before. And we would look at Joseph hiding away for fear of the Jews. But now, Joseph has come out of the shadows, and the eleven have moved into the shadow for the same reason, fear of the Jews. And so in this setting, on the greatest day in human history, Jesus reveals himself to those fearful disciples. He suddenly appears in their midst, right in the middle of the room. He stands amongst them and says, Peace be unto you. You know, there may be many times, even today, when we compare our public actions to those of the disciples. We compare our actions to the more outspoken followers of the Lord and we look at our own fear and cowardice and we feel embarrassed at how we have failed to let our light shine when we knew we should have. And you know what? These are things that we should feel shame over. We should never be afraid of what other men may think of us, especially those outside of the faith. Yet the comfort of looking at Joseph and Nicodemus shows us that even in our failure, even when we were afraid to step out for fear, for fear of man, even there God is patient and gracious. Instead of cutting them off, instead of saying, all right, you secret disciples, get out of here. I need people of of courage, of boldness. No, he is patient with them. He loves them and he forgives them, knowing that they truly had faith in Jesus as the Messiah of God's kingdom. And so God is gracious, and he forgives and still loves all of us, who even in times of fear and weakness, still in our hearts have faith that Jesus is the Son of God. And so as we are confronted today with even our own cowardice, God wants us to do exactly what Joseph and Nicodemus did. Instead of running away from the cross, no, run to the cross. Behold the courage of Jesus Christ as he hung there on that tree. Look at him as he faces sin, death, and hell alone. And then run to that empty tomb. And allow this hope to just flood your mind and to fill your soul with boldness and courage. Jesus is alive. Does that fill you with something? Jesus is alive. He is not here. He is risen. Every time you feel that choking Despair and fear and shame welling up inside of you. Remember this. Jesus is not dead. He is alive. He is here. He is in me. Does that fill you with courage? It should. 
I pray that it does. Because he lives, what do you or I have to truly be afraid of? Suffering? So what? That will pass. It's temporary. Pain? That too will pass. Rejection? So what? You are accepted by the living God himself. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 to 39 is a a passage of triumph. And Paul writes, What then shall we say in response to all this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, the present nor the future, nor any powers, height nor depth, anything in all of creation, will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Here today at the crossroads of life and death, The empty tomb declares that the time for fear has ended and the time for courage is now. Allow me to share with you one last story. You may have heard it before. It aired on Paul Harvey's Rest of the Story some years ago. One summer morning as Ray Blankenship was preparing his breakfast, he gazed out the window and saw a small girl being swept along in the rain-flooded drainage ditch beside his Andover, Ohio home. Ray knew that farther downstream, the ditch disappeared with a roar underneath a road and then emptied into the main culvert. So Ray dashed out the door and raced along the ditch, trying to get ahead of the foundering child. Then he hurled himself into the deep, churning water. Ray surfaced and was able to grab the child's arm. They tumbled end over end. Within about three feet of the yawning culvert, which would suck them underneath, Ray's free hand finally felt felt something solid, a rock, protruding from the bank. He clung to it desperately, but the tremendous force of the water tried to tear him and the child away. If I can just hang on till help comes, he thought. But Ray did better than that. By the time fire department rescuers arrived, he had pulled the girl to safety. Both were treated for hypothermic shock. And on April 12, 1989, Ray Blankenship was awarded the Coast Guard Silver Medal for life-saving. And the award is fitting, for this selfless person was at even greater risk to himself than most people know. Because you see, Ray Blankenship can't swim. Consider today. What is God calling you to? What is he telling you to step out in courage as we consider today that perhaps your next-door neighbor is drowning in sin, heading for an eternity without Christ. The need is real, and it is desperate. But you say, I can't swim. I'm not an evangelist. I wouldn't know what to say or do. What if they ask me a question I don't have a response for? 
So what? Ray couldn't swim. If the need is real, are you willing to put yourself on the line? He couldn't just stand by and do nothing. So he took a chance. And he saved that girl's life. Are we willing to take a chance? Are we willing to look at people all around us and say, I'm willing to put myself on the line so that others can live? Because I know without Christ, there is no hope beyond the grave. We have it, but are we going to keep it to ourselves? Or are we going to take a chance to put ourselves on the line, as Ray did, to save another? Because, my friends, if you are a Christian here today, that is your assignment. Jesus himself gave us these words. He went to those fearful disciples, hiding behind their locked doors, and this is what he told them. Peace be unto you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. That is our call today as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And as we look at the world around us, as we see the changes, and we know that the day of the Lord is coming ever near with every passing day, the day for courage might be closer than we realize. The day where we are faced with a similar situation to Joseph and Nicodemus may be near at hand. Perhaps all of the people that we expect to stand up in that hour are going to go running. Perhaps identity with Christ will become a disgraceful and dangerous thing in our country, where we can lose everything, perhaps our wealth, perhaps our prestige, perhaps even our own freedom. At such a time, instead of it bringing out our coward, instead of it bringing out our fear, may it bring about our courage to stand in faith by the power of God. May it cause us to stop hiding and instead boldly, like, like Joseph, like Nicodemus, boldly step out and say we are going to be identified with Christ. Wherever he leads, we are going to shine our light. If God could do it with Joseph and Nicodemus, my friends, he can do it with us. You know, I believe that God is doing something in this town and in this church that we have yet to see the fruit of. We're just on the threshold. I believe that great things are in store for this town. I believe that God is very shortly going to show us things that are just going to blow us away. And we're going to be there. And we're going to be used it like never before. And he's going to ask us, he's going to maybe ask you to do things that you've never done before. And that's going to take courage. It's going to take you to step out and, and push those fears aside. And in faith say, yes, Lord, whatever you ask of me, I'm going to do it. Because when God moves, he uses his people. Yes, his Holy Spirit is the fuel and the power, and in faith we step out, but he's going to use us. He's going to use our words. He's going to use your actions. Are we ready for it? Are we praying for it? Because, my friends, today I can tell you, with everything that's within me, I am ready. I am ready for Clarny to see revival. I am ready for this church to be so full with new believers that we don't know what to do. And so we just, start, we just start going for it. We start praying with people. We start talking with them about Jesus. And we just, we just see the Spirit leading and moving in such powerful ways that we will just be in awe of what God can do. I am believing for that day. I am ready for that day. Are you? Are we ready to get out of our shells and just looking inward and look outward to this community that needs the message of the gospel? Because they're all around us. They're in your lives already. God has placed you there for a reason. And today, if you're here and you're not sure if you're ready, if you're right with Jesus, today that can change. 
And today we're going to give an opportunity for you to respond in courage. You know, it's not always easy to do things that you're afraid of. In fact, most times it's not. And that's why we're afraid. And yet, think, in, think back in your life when you've been afraid to do something, and then you did it. And you succeeded. How did that feel? It gave you a, a thrill, a rush, that you could have never have experienced otherwise. What are you afraid of? God is with you. Who can stand against you? What are you, what are you afraid of? Step out in faith. This morning, stand with Jesus. Are you afraid of standing up in public? I'm going to give you a chance to do that today. If God is laying something on your heart, if you're ready to give your life to Jesus here today, I want to invite you. Today can be the day that that changes. And so, as we sing a closing song, Taylor Friesen is going to sing a song that might be new to some of you here today. It's a beautiful song that God has laid on my heart for the last six months. I play it in my office almost every week as I'm preparing a sermon. It's called The Scandal of Grace. It says, Grace, what have you done? Murdered for me on that cross. Accused in absence of wrong. My sin washed away in your blood. Too much to make sense of it all. This is the beauty of grace, my friends. We can't make sense of it, but we can live in it. You can live in it today. You can drown in the mercy and love of God today. You will be so overcome by it. Let it wash over you. And so as Taylor's going to come up and sing this song, I'm going to give you an invitation to come forward, and I want to pray with you. If you're ready to say yes to Jesus, receive his grace and mercy, today can be that day. I also want to give you an opportunity, if you want to be a farmer here today and plant a seed of faith in courage that God's going to do something with it, I want to direct your attention to the front of the pulpit. And if you can't see it, I'm just going to grab it here so you can see it. You'll remember, those of you who were here, two weeks ago, I stood up here and I quoted the words of the Lord Jesus who said, Unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. That was two weeks ago I stood here and put that single kernel of wheat into this jar of dirt. You should all be able to see the stalk, the two, the two shoots that have gone up almost eight inches in a matter of two weeks. And you won't be able to see it from back there, but alongside, the roots have already germinated beneath and sprung up, and there are four more stems springing up around it all from one kernel of wheat. Jesus gives the invitation, come and die with me and find that you might truly live. Come and die with me and find that in that sacrifice, your life will multiply and produce more harvest, more fruit than you could ever imagine if you just remain that dormant kernel of wheat in that jar. You know what's incredible? That wheat has been sitting dormant in that jar for four years in this pulpit. And it wasn't until two weeks ago that one of those kernels of wheat went in here, and look what's happening. How long has your faith been, been lying dormant, not producing anything? It doesn't matter if it's been years. In faith, when you plant it with Christ, He can do things faster than you could ever imagine. So today, if you want to plant a seed of faith, we're going to have this at the front as Taylor sings... Come forward. Take that kernel of wheat and plant it alongside Christ. See what he will do with your life. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, I simply put all of this into your hands. Holy Spirit, have your way in us. If there's anyone here, Lord, who just feels in their spirit this ready, this ready, willing spirit to just do something, to stand up, to be courageous, to not be afraid anymore, I pray, Lord, that you would open the floodgates here in this moment. If there's someone who just knows that you're knocking on the door of their heart, Lord Jesus, to accept you, to accept your sacrifice, to live with you, O oh Lord, may today be the day of salvation. So whatever your perfect will is, O oh Lord, let it be perfectly achieved in this moment, in your name, for your sake we pray. Amen.